right, well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to the well here at STSA. Let me start off by apologizing for the technical difficulties. We've had lots of them here today, so I appreciate y'all's understanding between video and sound and different things going on. But that's okay. We will never let that stuff bother us because we are not here because you're not here because we have the best sound system or because we have the best video or because we're the whatever, but because the Spirit of God is right here and the Spirit of God is working, then we're happy to be here, right? We're excited to be here. And what we are excited to be here about today is specifically what the Spirit of God has been working on us and teaching us through these past few weeks is about the invisible hand of God. Okay, and I know I'm kind of invisible right now. Can we help me out here by turning those lights on if you guys can? There, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Just one of those days. That's okay, okay. Thank you, guys. Thank you. We're talking about the invisible hand of God. And what we have been seeing over the past several weeks as we've been studying a great story from the Old Testament, the story of Esther, which if you're just kind of tuning in today, strongly encourage you to go back and read it. We call it a book, but it's really not a book. It's more like a short story, okay, at best, because it's, it's like, you know, 10, 15 pages, and it'll take you not, not that much time to read. And in this series, what we have seen, you tell me if I'm wrong. Many people have come to me and said, wow, I never looked at the story from that way. And wow, it's so engaging and so exciting and I can see so much. And people have been really saying like, it's great to dig into the word of God. Hasn't it been great to dig into that word of God that way? Let me tell you what I've personally loved more than anything else. I love that everywhere I go now, everywhere I go, go visit someone in their home, go out to have lunch with someone, talk to someone over email, whatever it may be. I love hearing people say, you know, Father Anthony, this, this, and that in my life, pray for me. This may be the invisible hand of God in my life. Or people say, you know what, this and this happened at work. There's the invisible hand of God. I love the people of God, which is us, talking about the Word of God. And I love the Word of God being a part of our day-to-day -day fabric, not just something that we read on Sundays. I love that it be in everything that we do when we look for the hand of God and we see God. So here's what we want to do before I get into today's message. As I announced earlier this week, starting next week, starting the Tuesday after Labor Day, we are going to do a challenge as a church family. And you may not be part of our church family, but I encourage you to join us in this challenge. And the challenge is this. We want to read the entire New Testament from Labor Day to Christmas. The entire New Testament from Labor Day to Christmas. And then the goal is going to be to read it from Labor Day to Christmas. That's five days a week, not seven. We'll give you two days off. Five days a week to give you a couple, little bit of time to catch up. And we're going to do it together. And there's power in us doing it together. So that you can just show up at lunch and say, hey, did you read what I read today in Mark chapter 6? And you say, hey, you don't, don't believe what I read. This is exactly what we talked about yesterday. When we're all on the same page, there's power to it. So if you have never been able to establish the habit of daily Bible reading, but you know you need to, this is your chance to jump on board. All right, so get excited about that. You can get more information at the connection table or on the app. And then the secret goal, I'll tell you this, but don't tell anyone. Okay, this is just between us. The secret goal is if we accomplish that, then we're going to do next year in 2018 is read the entire Old Testament as well. So that means in a year and a half time, in a year and a half time, you will have read the entire Bible. Some of you lived many years and a half in your lives and never even come close to that. So here's a chance, okay, that we do it all together. And that takes roughly, or if you're wondering how long, that's approximately a 15 minute a day commitment, five days a week. Anybody can do that. So I hope you would do that. Because one of the things that I told you in the beginning of this series, I don't know if you all remember, I said it in week one, and I believe it with all my heart. As I said, that the more we see the work of God in the lives of others, the more we will have confidence and trust in his work in our life as well. Remember when I said that? The more, how is it that you're able to trust God's work in your own life is when you see how he's worked in the lives of other people. People who have gone before you have seen worse circumstances than you. And when you see God work time and time again, and you have confidence. That's why some people come to me and they tell me about their hard time or their, their circumstance or whatever. And my question is, hmm, okay, someone tells me, you know, this thing happened at work and, you know, for, pray for me and my job or whatever. And I'm like, hmm, are you reading your Bible? And they're like, what's the Bible have to do with work? Like, does the Bible have, like, resume tips in the work? Like, what, what, what's Bible have to do with work? Or you're struggling, and, hmm, are you reading your Bible? Because to me, it's not about getting an answer from the Bible, but it's about understanding the ways of God. Because God works in similar ways. God works in unique ways for sure, but there's patterns. And when you commit to the Word of God, I promise you this. When you commit to the Word of God, I challenge you, commit to the Word of God. I'm challenging you to commit to what? I'm challenging you to commit to being encouraged, to being inspired to having your faith built up like that's what you're committing to. Because the more we see the work of God in the lives of others, the more we have faith in his work in our own life. 
And let's be honest, isn't that the best part of Esther? Isn't that why we love Esther? Like it's not so much a story of Esther, it's a story of all of us. Can't we all see ourselves in Esther in some way? Haven't we all been in a situation at some point in time in our life where it seemed, keyword there, seemed like darkness won? Some of us would say we feel that way right now. Where it feels like darkness has defeated light. Whether it's out in society and you see the racism and the bigotry and the prejudice, or you see ills of society, you see wars, you see greed, you see selfishness, you may be more personal way, you see addiction, you see illness, you see suffering, maybe in a where is God when, and then you fill in the blank, where is God when this is my second miscarriage? Where is God when so-and-so is ruining my reputation at work? Where is God when there's no end in sight to whatever? We've all been there. Well, the good news for us is that Esther's been there too. And actually, when we, when we look at the story of Esther, we see, with all due respect to all your circumstances, you ain't seen nothing like Esther saw. Your darkness is bad, but Esther's darkness was worse. Your darkness is, is difficult, but Esther's darkness was, was, was literally the end of the world. Like, it is life or death. But we learn a lot from Esther. Because what Esther shows us is that even though our circumstances may be hard, we are never alone. Isn't that the worst part of it? What's the worst thing for every child? The worst thing for every child is to be lost. You ever been, you, I don't know if any of you remember that. I remember one time when I was young, I was probably seven, eight years old, something like that, and I got lost in the mall. Just lost, and I wasn't really lost. I just couldn't see mom or dad, and they were right somewhere, but I just couldn't see them, and I still remember it vividly. I don't remember anything. Ask my wife, I don't remember anything. But I remember that day, and it was two minutes, the worst two minutes of my life. Because that feeling of, by myself, I'm all alone. I gotta fend for myself. It was before Home Alone had come out, so we didn't really know what to do back then. And isn't that, if we're honest, how so many of us feel when it comes to God? Like, God, I'm by myself here. I fend for myself at work. I gotta solve this situation on my own. Well, what Esther teaches us, we see in her story, we see in our own story, is that we're never alone. And we're never truly lost. And we're never in darkness, and darkness never wins. But the key, as we see with Esther, here's our key verse for, for this entire book, for those who are here. Esther 4.14 was the hinge upon which this story turned. Okay, Esther 4.14 was the middle of the story, which we saw, I think it was week two. And that was when Esther had found out the bad news about there's a plan to wipe her race off of the planet. Right, and the king signed a decree to kill all the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, wipe them off the planet. And Esther at first hesitated and said, I don't know if I can do anything about this. I don't know if I can speak to the king. And then Mordecai, her uncle, says, if you remain completely silent at this time, here's the key. Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Question. Difference between us and Esther. Both of us felt lost. Both of us felt confused. Both of us felt like darkness had won. Difference between me and you and Esther. Difference is this. She, how could she be so confident that a, a relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews? How come she was so confident that even though it's dark, that she's not going to lose? That even though she's losing, that she will not lose in the end? How could she be so confident? You know the answer? Because she read her Bible. And she committed to reading the Bible on a daily basis. Because she knew her history. And she saw that she was not the first person to feel like, Darkness had won, and she's certainly not the last. Moses felt that way when he was running from the bad guy in Pharaoh, and he had the Red Sea in front of him, and he felt like, you know what? Darkness won, good guys lose. Darkness didn't win, good guys still win in the end. Joseph felt that way when he was thrown in the well by his brothers. Darkness win, good guys lose. No, never. David felt that way. St. Paul felt that way. So many people, great people before me and you, have felt that way, and every single time, God is glorified. God never sleeps. That as the psalmist says, that weeping may remain for a night. But you know what comes in the morning? The joy. Always. And she knew that. And that's what we need as well. Like, that's what I want for you. That's what I say we need to read our Bibles and we need to be in our Bibles on a regular basis so we have that same confidence. The goal is to study our history, to understand our present. All right. And here's our theme verse here for this, this, this series is Romans 11:33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. This is why we read the Bible and why we commit to the Bible. And today, what we will see is that as, as with Esther, as with Joseph, as with David, as with so many greats, as with me and you, is that God's hand, for sure, is invisible. 
But there comes a point in time where the invisible, where the maestro, who's just kind of doing this from behind the scenes, there's a time where the maestro steps on stage. And you know what happens when the maestro steps on stage? The invisible hand of God turns into the invincible hand of God. And that's what we are going to see today. Let's jump back into our story. Let's recap where we are with the details just for those who weren't here. We are on chapter 7 of this story. And what has happened at this point is you have a lady named Esther who through a chance circumstance, which we don't believe in chance, we believe in the invisible hand of God, has become the queen of Persia. She's become the queen of the most powerful nation, the, the Persian Empire. Her husband, King Ahasuerus, is kind of a buffoon. right? And he's the kind of guy who is wielding his power and he just kind of acts first and things later. He had been tricked by a guy named Haman. Haman was an evil guy who hated all the Jews. Ahasuerus promotes Haman up in his ranks and he becomes like a top advisor. Haman convinces the king to sign a decree to wipe all the Jews off the planet and to kill them all. And he has an appointed day and appointed time. Esther finds out about this and her uncle tells her, you got to do something. You're the queen. You got to say something. And Esther says, no, I can't say anything because if I go to the king uninvited then he's gonna kill me. You can't just knock on the king's door and say, hey, you got five minutes. It's not how it worked. You had to be called into the presence of the king. And the queen is not gonna be called in to like the cabinet level meetings and to discuss politics and stuff like that. Queen had her role, this was not her role. So she said, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And then her uncle, like at a verse I told you said, you go, okay, because if you don't, then you're going to die and all of us are going to die, but God's going to bring, or you're going to die and God's going to bring relief from somebody else. And we saw last week that the, what Esther did is she took action by taking the most powerful action you can take. If you want to see and be the invisible hand of God, the most powerful action you can take is waiting. And she waited. And when she waited and she got, first she went to the king and she said, King, I need to talk to you. She could have died right there. And the king said, okay, what is it you want? And she said, what I want is, Let's have dinner together tonight. So the king said, okay, have dinner together. And then they have dinner together. And then the queen says, at, at, at dinner the king says, okay, what is your request? Name whatever it is you want. And Esther says, I want to have dinner again tomorrow night. And that's where we left the story last week with Esther saying, I'd like to have another dinner. Why Esther, you're waiting. Why you keep waiting? Well, clearly in her time of fasting and prayer, God revealed to her, just wait, just trust me. There's a plan. Like we talked about before, waiting is not waiting for grass to grow. Waiting is waiting for a cake in the oven. It's not ready yet, Esther. Give it a couple more minutes. Give it a little bit more time. And what we're going to see today is what happens when the timer, ding, goes off on that cake. All right. In the meantime, while she is doing this dinner, after she finishes the first dinner, Haman, bad guy, goes out of the dinner feeling kind of proud of himself, smelling himself, feeling like I'm kind of the man around here. He sees Mordecai, who he hates. Mordecai before wouldn't bow to him. Now Mordecai doesn't even stand for the guy. And he says, I'm going to sit down. And Mordecai did like this. Okay, when he walked by and Haman went crazy. And Haman said, I'm going to kill this guy. And I can't wait for the 12th month to kill this guy. I'm going to kill him tomorrow. And Haman came up with a plan that the next morning, I'm going to go to the king. And I'm going to ask for Mordecai to be hung. And Haman is feeling good about himself. So he says, you know what? King will grant this request. Little did he know that the timer just went off on the oven and the cake. And while Haman has this great plan, the ding goes off and God starts working. That same night, that same night, just happened to be that same night, King Ahasuerus couldn't sleep, had a bad dream, a nightmare. So he says, bring me the books to read. They bring him the books to read, the history books. He reads about one time where his life was, was attempted to be he was attempted to be assassinated. And a guy named Mordecai saved his life. Who's Mordecai? And they said, that's that guy. And he said, how did we reward Mordecai? And they said, we didn't reward Mordecai. So that same night, the king said, the next morning, I will reward Mordecai. Haman walks into the, the court the next morning and says, king, I need to talk with you. And king says, no, actually, I need to talk with you. I have somebody I want to reward. Haman in his mind thinking who he wants to reward is himself. So Haman says, here's what you do if you want to reward somebody. Give him a nice robe, give him a ring, prop, parade them all around town on the horse and say, this is the man. And the king says, that's a great idea. I want you to do that for Mordecai. And it was one of those, like the, the, the punked light comes out, okay, or the, the people, the candid camera comes out and says, no way. And Mordecai gets paraded around town by Haman. And that's where Haman started to realize he might be in trouble. And this is where we finished last week. 
If Mordecai, this is, Mor this is Haman's wife, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but you will surely fall before him. That was where we started last week, or we left last week. It turns out that even though it appeared that darkness had won, had darkness won? Was the game over? God was just getting warmed up. We're going to learn two lessons here today as we finish up this story. Here's our first lesson. What appears as the end is often only the beginning. What appears as the end is often only the beginning. What appears as the end, what appears as the end is often just the start of what God wants to do. What would you say to someone who watches a movie, goes into a movie theater, two-hour movie, walks out after about an hour and says, that movie made no sense. The movie didn't wrap up, conclude, or anything. It just kind of left everything hanging. What would you say to that person? What would you say to a person who reads half a book and says, you know what? That book made totally no sense whatsoever. Like nothing was resolved of all the issues. person who watches half a sitcom, half a game show. Like what? What do you say to a person who walks out halfway through something and says, it doesn't make any sense? You would say, hey, buddy, it ain't over yet. We're still in the middle of the story. Well, I say to you that so many times we do that to God. God, how do you allow this to happen? God, this doesn't make any sense. God, you left me. And what God says is, it, the story's not over. Your life is not over. Your life, wherever it is you are, some of us are in chapter 3, some of us are in chapter 30. I don't know where you are in your life, okay? But you're somewhere in your life, but there's still more chapters to go. Get to the end of the story, and then judge the author. Get to the end of the movie, and then judge the producer. But you have no right in the middle of the story. If Esther, in the middle of the story, if the story stopped a week ago, we'd have walked out and said, you know what? God doesn't love his people. God left Esther. Darkness truly wins. Doesn't pay, doesn't pay to be with God. Really? Or is it just you haven't gotten to that right chapter yet? Well, today we hit the right chapter. The chapter we're all waiting for in life, where God shows us. What appears as the end is actually often only the beginning. And what God does with Esther, which he does with so many of his faithful servants, is what, uh, is what we read about here in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when bad stuff happened to Joseph. As you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's what Joseph said. And that's what we're going to see with Esther, is the very thing that the bad guy planned, the very enemy, the tool of the enemy that he used to plan to kill you, God will turn that back around and use it to destroy him. And the very thing that was supposed to be meant to be the, your destruction will end up being your means of salvation. And we'll see that today with Esther. Let's get back to our story. All right. De uh, Esther, chapter 7. Haman, last time, had realized that he's going to be in trouble. He did the Mordecai thing. Now we go back to Esther and her dinners. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day at the banquet of, the, at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, what is your petition, Queen Esther, and it shall be granted to you? What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. This is now the second dinner. This is the third time he's asked, what is it that you want? Now the waiting is done. It's time to act. Verse 3. Then Queen Esther, in boldness and strength and courage and faith in God, answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my petition be given to me, let my life be given to me at my petition and my people at my request. King's like, what are you talking about? For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. Basically what she's saying in, that, in, that, in those two verses right there is saying like, I don't want to bother you, Mr. King, but there's something really bad happening and I'm destined to die. Look at the king, the great man, the great king, the great powerful ruler. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? I have a problem here with this sentence. King Ahasuerus, you signed a decree to wipe a people off the face of the earth. And then she says, I'm destined to die. And he's like, who? Like, how many of these do you sign? <laughs> you just wipe people off the earth, like left and right. Like, you don't even know who you've decreed to be wiped off the earth. What kind of king? What kind of, that's why I said he's a kind of a buffoon. But no worries. Remember the verse I showed you last week? Buffoons may be here and they may be higher buffoons over them. But higher official, 
watches over them all. And watch now. The highest of high officials step onto the stage, walk in the courtroom, and he comes with a boom. Verse 6. And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Boom! Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. You bet you're right you should be terrified, Haman, because you, big boy, are going down. Next verse. Verse 7. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. Our buffoon king, for the first time in his life, discovers that his wife is Jewish. Really sharp guy. Okay, the wife he loves so much, he just discovered her entire heritage. She's Jewish. And for the first time in his life, here's an invisible hand of God. Here's a miracle. This is a miracle. The first time we see in this story, the king of Harris gets angry. And what does he not do? He does not sign a decree right away. He goes and takes a walk. For the first time in his life, he breathes, he thinks, maybe he said a prayer, I don't know, but he doesn't make a right decision. And this is the invisible hand of God. Because as he's doing that, God is making his decision very easy for him. Next verse. Haman is pleading for his life. Verse 8. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was, pleading for his life. Then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? I almost want to say I feel bad for Haman. Because this has been a difficult day. You know, you just have like one of those bad days. Like I was saying, we had the AV, we had the like. Haman started this day by parading Mordecai around town, his absolute worst thing in the whole white world. Then he discovered that his plot of genocide also includes the queen, and now he's going to be accused of assault on that very same queen. You see the power of waiting? Like, just pause the story for one second. You see, if Esther had spoken the day before, did you, do you see? Do you see that waiting is not waiting for grass to grow? Waiting is not waiting for paint to dry. Waiting is waiting for the caterpillar to become a butterfly. God's plan for your life, butterfly, but it takes a little bit of time. God's plan for your career, God's plan for your marriage, God's plan for your life, it takes a little bit of time. So if you jump and you rush in the oven and pull out the cake too early, you ruin the cake. If you pull that caterpillar out too early, you ruin the butterfly. God's plan is beautiful in its timing, but we have to wait through its feet. Verse 9. As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. That's a sign of things to come, okay? Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look at the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. What the eunuch, the servant, says, Hey, there's a gallows out there, that's what they used to hang people on, that Haman built. Why would Haman build that? To kill Mordecai. Mordecai who saved my life? Well, this becomes a no-brainer of what happens next. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. You see how it works? Okay, a minute ago I said the day couldn't get much worse for Haman. I was wrong. Okay, just, it just got much worse. You see how God works? The end? Actually, no. The end for Mordecai, the gallows? No, actually, Mordecai, that's the beginning. That's just the start. It's the end for that guy. Haman is now dead. God wins, the people of God win, right? Story over, everyone lives happily ever after, right? No. Haman was just part of the problem, but there's a much bigger problem. What's the bigger problem that we still haven't solved? The decree. Like Haman is dead, but the decree is still in effect that all the Jews get wiped off the face of the planet. So the story goes on. Chapter 8 now. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, because now he had killed him, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. So now Esther is safe, and Mordecai is safe. Everyone lives happily ever after? No, because the people are still in danger. Verse 3. Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews and the king held out the golden scepter towards Esther. Now here, this is... Oh, actually, let's read the next verse now. I'll, I'll explain. Verse 5. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king and if I have found favor in his sight and the thing seems right to the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who were in all the king's provinces. 
For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Stop right here in the story. Okay, because this seems like, yeah, king, just write a decree or just write saying like, okay, like my bad, like change the, the, the law that was going to wipe them off. But there's a problem. And for those of you who study the scriptures and, and, and read, read the Old Testament before, you know that the Persian Empire had a rule that said once something was written into law, it could never, ever be erased. We're going to go back to the story of another uh, story during this Persian Empire, which is the story of Daniel. And you've heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel also lived during the Persian Empire under the King Darius. And another wicked person had convinced King Darius to sign a similar decree, which said that anyone who prays to any god over the next 30 days should be thrown in the lion's den. And what they used to do is they used to build up the king's ego. Okay, be like, because they thought the king was God. So say like, how could anyone pray to anyone except you and just you and worship you? So he'd say, yeah, you know what, you're right. And he signed the decree. Little did he know that his right-hand man, who was Daniel, Daniel was like the right hand of the king, was Jewish and would pray to the God of Israel every single day. He signed the decree. Everyone who gets does this goes in the lion's den. It's found out that Daniel is praying to the God of Israel. So now the king's in a bad situation. Let's read what it says right here. We're going to go to Daniel chapter 6. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing. This is the bad guys who told this to the king. So that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. You'll see that phrase expressed over and over. The laws of the Medes and the Persian, once it's in writing, it cannot be changed or altered. Verse 14. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. Meaning, when he found out that the king, that this, the thing he signed was going to kill his best friend Daniel. The king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. So the king, the most powerful man in the world, wants to save Daniel. So this should be like an easy one, right? It's the king's best friend. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Now, O king, that is the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no decree or statute that the king establishes may be changed. Verse 16. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Watch how serious the law is. But the king spoke to Daniel, saying, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought, and they laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Here you have the most powerful man but he can't change the law for his best friend. Why? Because that's the way it was. Once it was in writing, that was it. Let me ask you a question. Everyone think very hard about this. Daniel, there's a law that says he goes into the lion's den. Daniel's picked up by the bad guys and he's thrown in the lion's den. The door's sealed and it is sealed shut. The king himself says, there's nothing I can do to solve this. Let me ask you a question. Is there any solution to this problem? Is there any solution to this problem? Like the king says, there's nothing I can do. The king. There's nothing I can do. Like he's in the lion's den. There's the lion. The door is shut. Like, okay, the solution was maybe the lion like had a broken leg. No, he doesn't have a broken leg. Maybe the lion, you know, was asleep. No, the lion's not asleep. Maybe the door would break and he could run out. No, maybe the second coming would come. Maybe there's your solution. No second coming, no broken leg, no door broken. Is there any solution to this problem? The answer? No. But no solution doesn't mean no solution. It just means no solution I can see. Is there a solution for Daniel? No. There is no solution. The king himself said, there's no solution, people. I'm the most powerful man in the world. There's nothing I can do. There's no solution. But no solution doesn't mean no solution. No solution just means no solution I can see. Daniel didn't die in the lion's den. God found a way. Shut the mouth of the lion, no problem, easy. And what happened for Daniel in that lion's den was what was coming to kill him, no solution. God shut his mouth. God picked Daniel. Okay, the next morning the king came and saw that Daniel was still alive. Daniel walked out of there. And you know who got thrown in there? The people who threw Daniel in. So the very same end of the road became the beginning for Daniel and the end for the bad guys. 
Just as the same way that, like I said, Moses, when he ran into this Red Sea, and that was the end for Moses, there's no solution. There's no boats. There's no helicopter. Hovercraft's still too early. Like, there's no solution. But just because there's no solution just means there's no solution that I can see. Because what God does is he parts the sea. You go through. Bad guy go in. Bad guy die. The thing that was meant to kill you saved your life. Same thing with Joseph in a well. Joseph's brothers threw him in the well. No solution for you, Joseph. No solution that you can see. Here's the solution. You're trying to kill me? Well, God used this well to make me the second man in all the land of Egypt, and now you are the ones who are going to come and serve me. See how God works? No solution doesn't mean no solution. just means no solution I can see. I wanted right now, like if I had my way, I'm going to bring you some verses from the Bible. I had like 30, okay, but I limited myself to four. But I could have put 30 up here, and we spent the rest of the day just reading Bible verses. Because if you don't read the Bible, this is, again, this is why we need to read the Bible to see what the Bible says. Because the Bible says no solution doesn't mean no solution. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, above all that we could possibly imagine, according to the power of the works in us. So you think this is the best solution, maybe this solution, maybe this. God is not even on the same planet as you when it comes to thinking solutions. That's what Isaiah says in our next verse. Isaiah, oh, maybe not our next verse. We'll get there in a second. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. All right, it's 1 Corinthians 1.25. There's an Isaiah one in there somewhere. No, I missed the Isaiah one. It's in your handout. Is it in your handout? Look in your handout. Is there Isaiah 55.9? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts and your ways, your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. All right, you think this is the best solution? You think if I'm the king, I'll do this? You think if I'm the greatest, I'll do this? All that kind of stuff. Because right here, my foolishness, me on my dumbest, least creative day, me on my like, uh, day, I'm light years ahead of where you are on your smartest Albert Einstein, want to be like Father Anthony kind of smart day. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, I has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Like, it ain't even close. It ain't even close. And I could have kept going. Oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge and wisdom of God. How his ways are, his judgment past finding out his ways unsearchable. We could keep on going, but I'll just leave you right there. Daniel didn't die in the lion's den. Esther will not die in this story. Because even though there is no visible hope, there's invisible hope. And just between me and you, the invisible hope that's the one I'm going to lean on. I'd rather stake my life on the invisible hope than the visible one any day, any time. Let's go back to our story. Esther chapter 8, verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree. Ah! King Ahasuerus, the dumbest guy in the story, comes up with an idea. The dumbest guy comes up with an idea. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. King, what's your idea? Well, I can't erase this decree. But see, I'm the king and I can write whatever decree I want. And in fact, the only thing I know how to do in life is write decrees. That's like the only thing I do. Like if someone like rubs me the wrong way, I write a decree against them. So how about I write another decree, and I'm not really that smart, and I killed all the people around me who were my advisors. So why don't you write it? We'll say invisible hand of God. Don't take this, nobody take this personal. A woman given the power to write a decree for the Persian Empire? Back then? That's the invisible hand of God. And that's basically what the king says. Verse 9. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, as they were, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. What did it say? Next verse. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives. To destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women. And to plunder their possessions and on one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month. So the edict, the decree was that you can defend yourselves. Say, okay, what's mind-blowing about that? Remember, who are the Jews in the Persian Empire? They're slaves. A slave even if he's attacked, cannot fight back. 
So they are given permission, even though y'all are second-class citizens, I will give you permission this day that if you kill any of my people, that you will not be punished for that. You are allowed to. Say, okay, but wait a minute. But still, like Persian Empire versus slave nation. Look at the next chapter, chapter 9. Now it makes sense. Now in the twelfth month, that is in the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. So on the day that these guys were supposed to attack, the king said, you guys can fight back. But how is this nation going to fight back, this slave nation, against this powerful army? Well, the first thing it says is, is they won. How did they win? Let's keep reading. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all people. And the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the kids' work, king's work, helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. Ah! See how that worked? Did y'all catch that? Here we are, a slave nation, and we're given permission to fight back. But how are we going to fight back? They're big, and they're strong, and we're weak. How about we help you? The king, king's officials, military army, came to support the Jewish slave nation against their own people. And that's why the good guys won this day. Verse 4 and 5. So for Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with a stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. The same hand that wrote the death sentence, the same hand, wrote a decree to cause his armies to defend the very people that he decreed to die. Just one question. Just one question. Who thinks of this? Who comes up with this stuff? Like, this is Hollywood. This is no, like, if you were to see this as a movie, you'd say, oh, there's no way one would believe that. No one would believe that. There's no way that could happen. Who thinks of that? Answer, God. See how great our God is? See how great our God is? Good guys win. Wipe out all the bad guys. Mordecai, we're going to fast forward to the very end right now. Mordecai, after this great victory, declares a day of celebration. And it's a day of celebration that they celebrated that day. And to all generations, actually to this day still, the Hebrews, the Jewish nation, celebrate a certain feast. And it's, it's based on this, all right? The only thing that was left was they had to give a name to this feast. And I want to read three verses that tell us how they named this feast. What would you name the feast? What would you name the feast of when your nation was delivered and this great joy came? Let's read what it says. Verse 23. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had, which had begun as Mordecai had written to them, the custom of celebrating. Because Haman, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and cast poor. That is the lot. Okay, you remember that? That was back in chapter 2, I want to say. I don't remember exactly what chapter. When Haman cast the poor, think of it like dice. And he said, I want to kill all the Jews. What month should I do it on? So he would roll the poor. Okay, and lucky sevens. No, that didn't come up. So the second month, the third month, and he kept rolling, and then finally the lot came on the 12th month. So the poor, P-U-R, capital P, is the dice, or the lot casting. Had cast the poor to consume, destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, had commanded that he commanded by letter that this wicked plot, which Haman had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head. Watch now. So they called these days Purim after the name Pur. They called it Purim. They named it after the lot. Question. Has anyone ever heard of a boll weevil? I never heard of a boll weevil. Okay, some people actually have, okay? Are you people who raised your hands from the south? No? From the south? But don't know the boll weevil. Okay. The boll weevil is a two-inch beetle. One of the ugliest things you'll see on the planet. They're ugly, they're nasty, and they are destructive if you live in the South and you're a cotton farmer. They feed on cotton, and when bull weevil, kind of like the locusts, when they invade, they kind of wipe everything out when it comes to the cotton stuff. 
Bull Weevil became famous in a city called Enterprise, Alabama. And we got some people from Alabama, okay? Anyone heard of Enterprise, Alabama? All right, you've heard of it? Okay, very good. Y'all can look me up on this one. I found it on Wikipedia, so it's true. <laughs> city called Enterprise, Alabama. Loves the Bull Weevil. It is their mascot for this city. The Bull Weevil is like, they have statues around town for the Bull Weevil. You say, that's kind of weird because it's an ugly bug. You tell me what's even more weird about it? Is Enterprise, Alabama used to be a very strong cotton town. That was their number one product until the Bull Weevil came. And one year in the late 1800s, when they were expecting what's called a bumper crop, which means a big harvest, and they were expecting a ton of cotton this year, all the conditions were right, the Bull Weevil rolled into town and destroyed the entire crop, wiped them out, like I said, like the locusts, destroyed the economy, and threatened to destroy the entire town of Enterprise, Alabama. So why is it they love the bull weevil so much? Because the people of Enterprise, Alabama were very resilient. And they, when the cotton crop had gotten wiped out, they didn't give up. They started planting new things. And they started planting tobacco. And they learned how to plant peanuts, a whole bunch of other stuff. And they ended up picking up the pieces. And the economy, which had been destroyed, was not only restored, but was actually made better. Because now, especially when the bull weevil left for the following year and cotton came back, now they had diversified their agricultural economy. And now they were not solely reliant on just one kind of product, but now they had learned to farm different things. That's why you thought I was joking. If you go into the middle of Enterprise, Alabama, you will find a statue, a monument to the bull weevil. Can I read you what one person from the city of Bull Weevil who tells his story, what he wrote? He said, all things work together for good to the Christian. All things work together for good to the Christian, even our Bull Weevil experiences. Listen to what he says. This is powerful. Sometimes we settle into a humdrum routine as monotonous as growing cotton year after year. Then God sends the Bull Weevil. He jolts us out of our groove when we must find new ways to live, financial distress, great bereavement, physical infirmity, loss of position. How many have been driven by trouble to be better husbandmen and to bring forth far finer fruit from their souls? Listen carefully to a farmer who lost everything from the bull weevil. The best thing that ever happened to some of us was the coming of our bull weevil. Without that, we might still be a cotton sharecropper. Outside of this statue, in case you don't believe me, stands this. To the Bull Weevil Monument, December 11th, 1919 is when they built it. In profound appreciation of the Bull Weevil and what it has done to the herald of prosperity, this monument was erected by the citizens of Enterprise, Coffee County, Alabama. Coffee County, okay. I believe that we all have bull weevil experiences in life. We all have the worst thing ever, at the worst time ever, delivered by the worst person ever. All of us, we go through experiences in life where we say, not now, why now? What are you thinking, God? The worst time. And what we probably said at the time is, my life is ruined. This thing has destroyed my life. Some of us may be saying it right now. But ask yourself, did your life end when that happened? Can you think back to a time where your life was, quote, over? Where you had hit the dead end? Where there was no solution? And can you look back on it today and say, well, maybe there was a solution. Maybe it wasn't over the way I thought it was. I bet you this, and I'm taking my life in my hands here as I say this, because I know there's some people here who have gone through some serious stuff. I say this to people all the time, and I hate saying it because I don't like saying it, but it's true, so I say it. I would bet you this, that oftentimes the worst thing that ever happened to you turns out to be the turning point of your life. It was for these citizens of Enterprise Alabama. It was for Esther. Esther had no hope. She reached the point of death. The lot had been cast. The decree had been signed. Her life was over. 
the invisible hand of God? I think Esther would say, her bull weevil. Worst thing ever? Best thing ever. Because that's how God works. As we wrap up this series, I told you all in the start that it ends happy. So there should have been no suspense right here. You shouldn't be surprised that the good guys won this story. I told you, Esther's not going to die, and we said it from the start. But what I hope, what I hope, is that we learned a few lessons from this. I hope we learned that no solution doesn't mean no solution, just means no solution I can see. I hope we learn that the end, what appears to be the end, is oftentimes only the beginning. And as we go back to the circumstances of our own lives, as we kind of like now exit, like we kind of clap for Esther and back to our real life, like the show is over now and the play is done and now it's like back to my circumstances, my miserable life, my lazy husband, okay, my nagging wife, my illness that I can't shake, my financial whatever, my, 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 my. As we go back into that, we don't go back the same way. We go back with a renewed sense of trust in God. That God oftentimes takes death and turns it to life. Takes dead end, makes it just the beginning. That takes no hope and makes it a cause for celebration for generations to come. Oh yeah, if I'm not mistaken, one time he did that pretty famously, right? Took death and made it into life. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. That through death, he, meaning Christ, might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those through fear of death, who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. You see, there was a time where death reigned over all of us. And the devil had this weapon in his hand called death. And nobody could defeat it. Nobody could defeat it. Moses tried, couldn't do it. Daniel tried, couldn't do it. Dave, like nobody could defeat this thing called death. And then Jesus came into the picture. And Jesus took death head on. And death was a bad word before. But now death is not a bad word. Death is no more a bad word for us. And we, like Esther, we celebrate the day of death. We celebrate it. Esther celebrates a feast called Purim. What's Purim? Purim means the day we were destined to die. We have a, daily, a yearly celebration called the day we were destined to die. And we do too in the Christian church as well. It's called Good Friday, the crucifixion. And we hold the cross up in pride. We tattoo it. We wear it around our necks. We make the sign of it all the time. We are proud of what was our death sentence. Because it's through death that we find life. Just a great song. I went to this conference back in October. No, May. I went to a conference in May. And I heard a song. And ever since I heard the song, I listen to it all the time. I don't listen to music, but I like just, I listen to this. I go find it on YouTube. I listen to this song all the time. It is the best song in the whole wide world. At the time I heard it at the conference, I didn't like it because I just felt it was too loud. Okay, because I'm like the old guy, like, turn it down. Like, that's me. But <laughs> then I heard it nicely. It's a song called Death Was Arrested. You should go listen to this song when you go home. One of the lines in it, the whole point of the song is about how there was this thing called death. And it was defeating us. And then Jesus came and handicapped, or not handcuffed, what I keep saying, handcuffed death. And he took it and put it as a prisoner. And I want to bring you just one line. I put it on your handout as well. It touches my heart so much. And it is the story of Esther. It says, I won't sing it, I'll just read it. It says, our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested and my life began. Why I love this so much, when you go looking for it on the YouTube, there's one that's like live, I don't remember, like the band is like Inside Out or something like that. When they're singing the song, they sing those first two lines. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. And then they shut all the lights and it's silence for like a minute. Maybe not a minute, maybe five seconds, but you know what I'm trying to say. Dead silence, lights go off, dead silence. And then, boom, they come back with the Jesus rose. And why I like that so much, because I think so many of us are in that moment of silence right now. And so many of us can relate to that moment of silence, where truly it appears that our Savior, even God himself, has been killed. Our Savior, on a cross, darkness wins. But I'm telling you, he comes back every time. Every time I read the story of the crucifixion, he rises on the third day every single time. I've seen the movie like, every time. Never once that he stays. And never once the people of God stay with no hope. 
you who hold the stars in the palm of your hand, you who take care of every sparrow and every bird and every flower and every everything, Lord. You who hold up as the crown, hold us up as the crown of your creation, and say that you will never leave us or forsake us. You'll always be with us, Lord. And I pray that through our study of Esther, that we'd remember this lesson that you are with us always, and you'd help us to trust in you, give us the courage, and the and the faithfulness to to stay close to you, Lord, and, and to never get ahead of you, to wait when you want us to wait, to act when you want us to act, but build our faith and our trust in you, Lord. And continue, Lord, to work with your invisible hand in our lives. Open our eyes, Lord, to see the wonderful things that you're doing day in and day out in us and around us. And never let us to be blind people who, who complain and, and, and just don't see your work in this world. We pray these things in the mighty name of your Son. And with the prayers of all of your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.